0: One of the other companies we went into due diligence with, which I actually think is a a very relevant story, um, had an incredibly cumbersome due diligence process. Some would argue excessive and overly costly. And that a lot has to do with the size of the company, right? Um, And so it was really an interesting process for us when we went through this due diligence phase, because, you know, we were dealing with consulting firms in the big five. Here we were at frankly, a tiny company um, going through this type of du- level of due diligence and scrutiny. Um, and, and that was crazy because I remember, you know, there was a situation where here I am, I think I must've been like 24 years old and I'm sitting across from like big five accounting firm, you know, a, you know, nine or 10 different executives, you know, two or three times my age. And I'm trying to explain the dynamics of our very tiny operation. And the whole time, obviously, I'm like figuring it out as we're we're figuring it out as we go. But during that whole entire process, I'm sitting here saying, "Seems really expensive."
1: Hi there, and welcome back to another episode of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm your executive producer, Colin Morgan. And today on the show, our host John Warlow is joined by Lorenzo Deplano, who sold his company Soulless Technologies for just over $15 million back in 2019. But before I get there, I just want to take an opportunity to thank you. I recently went over to Chartable.com and noticed that Built to Sell Radio is a top 100 entrepreneurial podcast in North America. So thank you so much for being a loyal listener here of Built to Sell Radio. And if you want to help further support this podcast, you can go over to Apple Podcasts and there you will be able to leave a rating and review for the show. And it truly helps us not only increase our rankings, but also gets our podcasts in front of more listeners just like you. So thank you very much for continuing to support the podcast. Okay, so let me talk to you today about Lorenzo Deplano, who along with three partners started Solus Technologies back in 2015, which was one of the first vape manufacturers in the United States. The business boomed to revenue of more than $1 million per month, but a looming threat had Lorenzo and his partners eyeing an exit. Here to tell John Warlow the full story is Lorenzo Deplano. Enjoy. <music>
2: of Diplano, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hey, how's it going, John? It's great to have you here. Tell me about Solace Technologies. What did you guys sell?
0: Yeah, so it's it's uh, it's an interesting story. So um, Solace Technologies, we were actually one of the first ever vape manufacturers in the United States.
2: And vape. So the, this, this is the stuff that... I see these people at the bus stop and they're like, they've got these little things <laughs> Like they look like you're playing kazoo's, but they're not kazoo's. It's vape. Okay, so when you say vape, are you talking about the 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 the, like the kazoo thing they hold in their hand, or the stuff they put in, or both?
0: A little bit of both, right? So you know what's what's funny about the industry is that you know most people see it now as this kind of ubiquitous thing that a lot of people are using, and and you know there's people that are using it for nicotine, people that are using it for cannabis, people that are using it for a number of different things. But when the industry started out, it actually was really born in Southern California. And it was born out of a lot of recovering addict and recovering addiction centers where um, you know it was kind of this standard feature where if you were you know someone who was dealing with addiction and you went into treatment, one of the things they would instruct you is, hey, well, don't use alcohol. Don't use a number of these other traditional vices that you um kind of were dealing with and struggling with instead you know smoke cigarettes that's okay right um and so you had a lot of these different people which who were dealing with addiction and or had recovered from dealing with addiction who had these nicotine or tobacco addictions to traditional tobacco products like cigarettes and a lot of these inventive young people basically invented what we know today as the modern day vape industry um and they came up with these different solutions and these kind of creative things to your point, kind of like the kazoos or the different types of devices that you see out there, as well as the e-liquids that go in the devices as a solution to saying, Hey, you know, we don't want to smoke cigarettes. We still want to get that kind of satisfaction. Um, but we want to do it in a way that's just frankly, a better alternative. Um, and that's kind of how the modern day vape industry that you see today, where that originated from is, is kind of there in Southern California. And so, um, yeah, that, that was kind
2: of the birthplace of SalS Technologies and what was the um, opportunity and, you guys saw? Because you didn't create vapings, it was there. So what was the angle you guys took? Yeah,
0: absolutely. So what we really did is we basically focused on changing and altering the pH levels of the products that we were putting into the market in terms of the e-liquids that would basically be sold to customers across the country and around the world. And by doing that, we made it so that way the liquid could fall into smaller, more discrete devices that weren't, to your your, um, point, like these big devices with massive smoke clouds. Because we believed that, you know, we looked at the data and we said, if you look at most adult tobacco smokers, traditional tobacco smokers with cigarettes, you have about 34 million of them in the United States at the time, this was 2015. You had about 480,000 people that died every year from smoking cigarettes or smoking related illnesses in the United States. And then you had 6 million people that died globally, an estimated 6 million from smoking cigarettes. So we said, look, there's a really big market there, but most of these consumers, they're, you know, in the 35 plus demographic, they frankly want a solution that's a little bit more subtle, a little bit more discreet, something they can, you know, use and not have, make a statement with, right? And so we really focused on that niche and developing technology around that niche that that kind of satiated that need for customers to get their nicotine satisfaction, to have an alternative to smoking cigarettes, but was also discreet. And not, you know, big smoke clouds and driving hoverboards and all sorts of stuff.
2: And there was something about the liquid you guys created. I think they, do they call it, do they call it juice in the industry? Like the stuff that goes in? Okay. So there was something about the formula of the juice that you guys created, which enabled it to be in smaller devices. And therefore you could be more discreet and would appeal to people that were doing vaping for Smoking cessation and, and more discreet purposes, as opposed to "look at me, I'm 15 and I'm cool" because I've got a. That, that was the idea.
0: Right, 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 exactly. And I and what we really specialized in was adding pH modifiers to the actual liquid formulations that we did. Would you say T, th modifiers? What is that? Uh, mean? pH modifiers. Oh, so really? adjusting the acidity levels of the different liquids that we were working with, and that was what really made our products unique in the industry. I'm and fascinated
2: then, how you figured this stuff out. I mean, were you like a biochem major or something? Like, what? How did you figure out the pH modifiers? Was the the angle? Yeah.
0: So, so it's it's really funny because you know we we always got asked this, and and the way our company started out is there were four of us. We actually didn't raise any money at all. Nobody would invest in 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 a lot of the things we're working on. Myself and one of my other partners. Um, Eric Anwar had a number of other ventures on on the side that we were developing one company that had successfully grown and was in a pretty mature state in downtown Los Angeles, and we kind of paired up you know with another two individuals, Joey Raymond and Brendan McDermott, and what we really did was you know we looked at the space and one of my partners Brendan McDermott was really inventive and creative and. He said, you know, look, the, the reality is, is when we look at all the, when we research all the patents that have been filed in the past and a lot of documents for traditional tobacco products, there's a lot of talk about, you know, adjusting the acidity and the pH levels of tobacco products, traditional tobacco products. But that's something that really has not been done in our segment and in the industry in, in the vape segment side of things. So how can we apply those same rules that were kind of tried, tested and true um, and reapply them here to make it that so that way uh, traditional vape products actually can be as effective um, from a satisfaction standpoint as the products that you use, such as smoking cigarettes, right? Um, And so that was really kind of his insightfulness to kind of come up with that thought process. And then what really became the challenge was the technology hadn't really caught up yet. You know, the devices in the market were still very large. They were, you know, big smoke clouds, the the whole nine, right? And so it was really on us to kind of work with manufacturers to ensure that the the technology and the hardware component basically caught up with what we call basically the software component, what what most people know as the juice, right, or the e-liquid. And so, yeah, Yeah. yeah, that that was kind of the, the idea of it. But, you know, in terms of knowledge, it's funny because if you look at us, I think we have one business major, one film production major one music major and one history major, right? So it's like, you could not get further from the biochemistry, uh, you know, uh, knowledge base that you would need to to apply to something like this. How did
2: you guys deal with the money stuff? So you didn't raise money. Um, Did you each kick in a similar amount? Like how did you divvy up the equity? Like what was, how did you guys figure out all that stuff? Yeah, so,
0: so what we did is we actually started in a basement of a parking garage in downtown Los Angeles. I'd like to say we could say that we started in a garage, but we didn't even, we we actually went below ground and started in a parking garage of a, of a beautiful office building, but it was still a parking garage. And, um, you know, at the time we, we opened up the office. It was a little tiny office, more like a janitor's closet. Um, and honestly, I think it now is a janitor's closet. I, I, you know, if we went back, but basically We each put in $5,000. The $5,000 that we each put in really went towards the raw materials and raw goods to prove things out. And, you know, the first year we opened up a couple different credit card accounts. We lost a lot of money for us, a lot of money at the time. It was, we lost, I think our 2015 tax return had negative $21,000 on the return. And then, you know, sorry. Who
2: was the signator on the credit card? Applications, like whose credit history was on the line if you guys had defaulted on the card? That was me at the time. <laughs> so that was that was so did you take more of the equity then? like did you because you were
0: taking more of the risk? So I mean, the way we kind of worked it out is we we kind of the one thing I really appreciate about our dynamic and I think you know this speaks to one of the reasons why we were so successful and effective was we cut the company up into quarters to start. And then as it evolved, the equity landscape kind of shift. You know, one of our partners, you know, had some other ventures. So, you know, we bought him out. Me and the other two partners bought him out towards the end of the venture before how did we you exited.
2: Fi- how did you figure out the value of the company for that purpose? Because, well, because yes, sorry, one of ahead. the things that I think a lot of people deal with is like, how do I buy my partner out? And there's a there's a acquisition price for a company. Like if it's a strategic acquisition and some fancy company comes in and buys it, oftentimes you can get a premium. But there's often a different discounted price if a partner wants to leave. So I'm just curious, how did you guys value the company when your partner decided they wanted to move away from an operating role?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I really think what, what for us and for, for at least I can speak for myself and say, what was important is what was fair, right? I think that, you know, a company is, is in many ways, just a group of people that are coming together to work on a common goal and a shared vision. And, you know, people obviously reach different points in their lives and they have different intersections. And when a partner wants to exit, you know, to me it was really important that we approach the situation in in a way that was fair. Right. And that, that when, you know, others approach that situation, I always think it's the, the best thing is to say, okay, look, you know, what are your personal goals? Let's start there and then let's work out from that and say, okay, How does this, how can we achieve this, this deal in a way where you walk away happy and we walk away happy,
2: right? So how did you do that in this case?
0: So in this case, we looked at the business, we looked at the trajectory of the business. We said, okay, you know, what is the cash flow the business generates? What is the realistic valuations that the market is giving us,
2: right? How did you come up with that valuation? Like when you said, what is the market giving us? Like, what were you pointing to as, 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 uh. Evidence of what the value of the company would be. Definitely. So, so basically our
0: business, by the time when we were looking to acquire one of our partners, uh, a substantial piece of one of our partner's equity stakes and buy them out, one of the things that was happening is there were a lot of regulatory dynamics that would mean and signify that you know, there'd be pretty extensive cash intensive events that we would have had to spend money on in coming years. And so in light of that type of risk, what we said is we said, look, the the business currently today does about $1 to $2 a month in revenue on 40% cash flow. That being said, we're going to have pretty substantial CapEx costs that are going to be hitting in around 24 months. So based on the CapEx costs, based on the growth rate of the company, we think that a 4x on our cash flow, 4 to 5x on our cash flow makes sense from a purchase price perspective for this equity. And that's kind of how we modeled it.
2: Got it. And and the regulatory uh, speed bumps, I don't know what you want to call them, but but expenses, were, were those known? Like had the regulator said, look, everybody has to be compliant with this level of whatever uh, by this date, was that known to you what those or was it sort of more of a moving target?
0: Well it was it's a really interesting question because it played a lot into our exit plan. Um, so What was known was the costs, right? We knew we were going to have to spend millions of dollars to file these very extensive FDA applications. What wasn't known was whether the products would actually be accepted, whether the FDA would be a more of a political organization and and use this to ban products, or whether they were going to be more of a scientific organization and use this to kind of uh, study the products, analyze them, and decide which ones were actually uh, beneficial for public health. And so yeah. that was a big uncertainty, right? Um, and so for us, you know, that uncertainty was, came down to a lot of the decision
2: around why we we decided to exit at the time we did. Yeah, I mean, that's that's gotta be huge weighing on you is like, A, what's the cost? B, are we gonna pass? Is there gonna be requirement changes to the formula, et cetera? Where did you guys land? I, I know the, and I don't ask this question sort of a gotcha question. I don't, I don't, I don't mean it to sound that way, but I know that the vape industry went from this halo of smoking cessation and a slightly less risky version of smoking. that was better for everybody. So it was all good. And then of course, uh, at somewhere along the lines, kids started using it because of the fancy, like the, the bubblegum flavor, blah, 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 and all the different flavors. And that's when everybody went, Oh, hold on a second. This is not as benign as we thought it was. It's, you know, it's actually targeting kids and, and and getting kids addicted. How did you guys stick handle that change in the industry? Did you go down the road of the the bubblegum flavors and all that stuff? Or did you intentionally keep away from it? Like how did you guys think about that? And again, I ask not not in a judgmental way, but just more I think it plays out later in the FDA. Because the tone of the FDA changed, I think, from, hey, this is great. We're going to get people stop smoking to hold on a second. These guys need to be regulated. So how did you guys play that change?
0: No, and it, that's a great question. And, and I love that question because I think it's it's really important. And so the, the really interesting kind of shift was, was to the narrative really happened around 2000, late, early 2019, let's say. And you started kind of having this shift. Where the drumbeat stopped focusing on cigarette smokers and it started focusing on vape users, and then basically around that time, you had you know the federal government, which at the time had won a position, right, and and for frankly all the way since back in 2015, 2014, they were looking for an excuse to kind of regulate the industry and tax it, because what a lot of people don't know is that vape, the vape industry is not subject to a lot of the same taxes oh, that geez. the traditional cigarette it. industry Ooh. is liable and subject to. Um, Irrespective of that, what happened was you kind of heard that drumbeat escalating. um, And you did have, you know, a lot of different bad actors in the industry that had no intention of filing, you know, FDA applications, they had no intention of, you know, having proper stewardship of their products. And a lot of those companies actually effectively ended up you know, not filing anything. And they were just going with the the, the philosophy and the belief system of we're just going to keep operating until we're told to shut down. And frankly, even then we'll just file for bankruptcy because we're going to make hay while the sun shines. And that was kind of their, their philosophy. The irony is that a lot of the more, um, you know, responsible actors that did file applications with the FDA that did go through the process um, around 2019, 2020, um, ended up being severely financially and economically impacted by those decisions. Um, whereas the bad actors still to this day in the United States are still able to sell, frankly, without any type of penalty. Um, in fact, to the point where I think I read some statistic recently that 80 to 90% of all the vapes that are sold in the United States right now are illegal products from China that are these disposable vapes that have become incredibly popular. Um, Wow. And there's been effectively little to no enforcement on that. Um, so it's, it's, it was a really crazy shift. You know, going back to your question, it was like, it was a very crazy shift in the narrative. We didn't even know how it was going to play out. We knew it was going to get complicated. And so really around 2019 was when we started exploring different options. We, we were kind of looking at basically like two different options. One was, do we raise capital and stay private? Or do we sell to another company that's either public or private? And those are really the two different decisions we were weighing. And it was kind of at that point in time, it was like, okay, well, if we're going to get diluted substantially because valuation we would get would be discounted, it might make sense just to exit with a strategic partner that will ensure the longevity of the brand and, and the, the, the company that we built.
2: And to be clear, the discounting you were anticipating was because of this requirement to do the FDA uh, regulations and, uh, and the, the potential formula changes and so forth. So, so the potential acquirers were, were discounting the value of businesses in this industry. Yeah,
0: yeah. absolutely. And, and I think what you saw was, you. it was really interesting because you saw the valuation spike when Juul, I think, raised with $12 billion from one of the big tobacco companies, Altria you know, and there's this huge fervor, everybody wants in. And then like, I think it was a year later, you had, you know, the vitamin E acetate scandal where there was like a poisoned batch of illegal, like cannabis vape products that basically killed a bunch of people. Um, And so that was a year span where between one event and the second event triggered and and it was just a crazy time, you know, and so you kind of saw the valuations jump and then kind of recede and, and jump again. Um, fortunately, we we were kind of on the tail end. It was before the vitamin E acetate scare that happened, and it was a really interesting kind of region where you saw the valuations compress because obviously, as the proximity of the regulatory event came in, the more there was a concern and a fear of, hey, can we get our
2: cash flow out if we make this investment, and what yeah. can we do? And did you have the 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 flavored stuff that they were looking to target? That you would like was that part of the product? mix at the time?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, this is the funny thing is, you know, when people hear like, you know, oh, well, there's a, there's a, let's say an apple flavor or a chewing gum flavor, you know, the assumption is that that's designed and molded towards the preferences of kids. The unfortunate reality is that myself and most consumers that are even adults like flavors more than they like tobacco flavor. (laughs) And if you could have the option and, you know, I don't, you know, for people who are cigarette smokers to smoke an apple flavored cigarette, uh, you know, most of those people would probably say, yeah, tobacco kind of doesn't taste too great. I'll probably use that alternative. The issue comes where like you have basically irresponsible uh, retailers as well as irresponsible manufacturers that take it a step too far. And I think a step too far is, hey, we're going to put, you know, bubblegum cartoons, on our vape product, because we think that's cool. And I think that's where you take it a step too far because it's still a nicotine product. Nicotine is an addictive substance, right? And you, you don't want to do that. Um, and you know, the reality is, is a lot of those manufacturers had the belief that, well, I like it and I'm 32. So why does it matter? And even though that's their belief system, that does matter, right? Because that impacts the whole industry as a whole.
2: So when are you guys, you and your partners starting to see the winds of change that you're, you're starting to see this dilution happen? Uh, You're considering raising capital. Like just, this is 2000, late 2018-ish? Is that that the time Yes. So, so
0: really what happened, I think is, you know, we went through hyper growth, which was a very weird experience because we went from... I think I said this earlier, we went from losing money in 2015 on our tax return to by 2018 doing one to two million a month on, you know, 30 to 40% in cash flow. And, you know, that growth was insane. Um, And, you know, one of my business partners and I, we had other businesses. And so we saw the comp against those and we were like, wow, this is growing, you know, exponentially. And around 2018, you saw the competitive landscape evolve. There were a lot of people coming in that were trying to do the same thing. There were a lot of irresponsible actors coming in and doing the same thing. And so you kind of saw the, you know, the growth rate go from triple digits to well, not even quadruple digits to triple digits, to then like double digits. And that was a little bit of an interesting curve. And you could kind of, you could feel almost feel that curve happening and feel the pulse rate on the company evolving. Um, and so around that time, 2018, it was really an interesting point for us personally, because we said, you know, where, where do we envision the direction of our own personal lives going? Where do we envision the direction of the company going? Can we really scale? How far can we scale this? You know, for me personally, like, you know, I my, my favorite component of entrepreneurship and building a company is, is the study of how things scale, right? And I think the difficulty of where we were at with this exponential growth curve that we kind of were... were reaching that, that late stage of is that the industry was moving very, very quickly because it was a very new and innovative industry. The, the issue is, is that when you're dealing with such a crazy industry, as I'm not sure you've heard in many of your other, uh, you know, podcasts and interview episodes, is that it's basically the, the pressure is on you to continuously innovate to keep up. Sure. And so you have a great success that'll give you a run for, you know, six months to 36 months. And then somebody else comes in and they got something else. And the, the best comparison I have is it's kind of like you're running on a treadmill. And even if you're doing very well on that treadmill, there's another treadmill right next to it. And that, that, that next, you need to effectively jump to that next treadmill. But the catch is, is that next treadmill moves faster. And each one of these jumps to different treadmills are paradigm shifts in an industry. And so you're yeah. constantly needing to jump to different treadmills that are operating at a faster and faster pace. The the casualty in our industry is that it was highly regulated, and so you're jumping to faster and faster treadmills with a looming, you know, risk, you know, on the business itself. Yeah. So
2: you you've got two major headwinds, right? You've got this the, the dark clouds, ominous, looming. FDA regulation, the filing required for that, but you've also got these counterfeiters, these pirates that are like jamming, you know, stalking the market, flooding the market with counterfeit stuff and shady stuff. So there's some pretty big headwinds that you guys are facing at this point. I've got, uh, I've got TPD. TPB Turning Point Brands, the ultimate acquire, reporting revenue in uh, 2018. Now this is I don't I, I, you know verify this or not of around 10 million top line and about 3 million adjusted EBITDA once you guys have gone through the adjustment process. I think that's what TPB reported. Does that feel roughly where you guys were at in 2018? That, that makes sense. Yeah. Ballpark, I think that maybe are trailing
0: 12 months, but I'd have have to look, you know. um, If if you're growing, it would have been
2: more about, you know, to look at forward or whatever, but
0: yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So I think maybe when we
0: went through the accounting process, there were some components we had to divest out of the deal as well. So, you know, there was a business segments that, that we had, for example, like our main, like our core OEM white label business that, you know, parts that were divested out. And so with that, you know, that, that sounds about right. So I mean, that'd be about, I think, eight hundred, nine hundred thousand dollars 900000 a month yeah. at, top line yeah. at that time. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And, and about like super profitable, like even on a, like a, like a tax return, like a adjusted EBITDA, you were around three, it sounds like. So pretty amazing.
0: No, yeah, it was, it was, it was great. And it was, you know, the better part, the best thing about it was we had that revenue, and there was, you know, also our kind of cannabis adjacent revenue that was coming in that unfortunately, as part of the transaction, they couldn't acquire that because, you know, Turning Point Brands is a public company. You know, they're so not- So they a- couldn't
2: be in the cannabis stuff?
0: Yeah, they couldn't. I mean, they weren't, it was a little bit more conscious about anything in the CBD cannabis adjacent space,
2: so. So did you, did you sell off those or did you just kind of sunset those products? Like, how did you deal with that? that yeah, so, so a lot of that stuff we
0: tried to divest before the close- And then, you know, other components of it, we basically just kind of, we shut down and sunset as part of the contingencies of our close.
2: Okay. So you, the partners are like, man, the headwinds are really strong here. This looming cloud of the FDA regulation, we should, we should think about either, again, the two options you had on the table, it sounds like were raise some capital, but prepare to be diluted in that case, or just sell outright. How, was Take me inside the conversation among the partnership group at that point. Like, what was the dynamic in that room at the time? Like, were were some people heavily in favor of raising money versus selling out? Like, just let me be a fly on the wall in that conversation. Yeah, no, absolutely.
0: So, you know, what we really talked about is there was never one specific moment per se where we said we either want to sell or we don't. You know we had a lot of different investment banks that were reaching out to us saying hey you know we'd love to help you raise capital you know we've heard about you in the industry we also had investment banks that were reaching out to us, saying hey you know we could also help you sell the business and so kind of what we decided is we said look you know um let's bring on an investment bank we brought in an investment group named stifle nicholas and you know we said look let's field out offers you know and we were also getting offers so we had a lot of the larger players reaching out to us saying hey you know we're very interested we were a little bit hesitant and skeptical about the larger players, especially the big tobacco ones, just because, you know, especially with big tobacco companies that sell cigarettes, there was a reputational risk there. If we sold to a big tobacco company that sold cigarettes from the industry standpoint, you know, we would become a little bit of a, of a pariah, you know, and that would become our reputation, which might seem weird now, but that was the case at the time. Um, and so, so yeah. So we really what what our focus was is we knew we want we didn't want to sell to a company that sold cigarettes. So that was a real focus. Um, we knew that if we did sell, that would be have to be one of the contingencies of a buyer that acquired us. And um, you know, frankly, you know, the way we looked at it is we said we kind of divided and conquered. We said, you know, I sat down with my partners and. I said, look, I'm going to handle the due diligence process. I'm going to handle the quality of earnings. I'm going to go through and handle, you know, the relationships and the dynamics with the investment banks and the varying parties. Um, you guys are going to sustain and run the day to day operations of the business, and and that was really really important. You know, in the in the selling process was to do that because what can very much so happen. You know, and this is might be uh, not new, news to somebody who sold a business, but for somebody who hasn't sold a business, what very often you know, happens, um, is it becomes a very cumbersome event and it's an event that drags on and on. And even if it's only for four months or six months or a year, it's it's a brutal process. And it really takes away, you know, that, that unique, you know, youthful energy that you spend towards creating new ideas and innovating.
2: It's kind of different
0: thought process, right? When you're going to sell a business versus when you're
2: building a business, it's completely different brains. I've heard it referred to as the, the entrepreneur's colonoscopy. It's like the, <laughs> the, the absolute worst possible thing to put yourself through, but required if you want to be healthy, et cetera. What was, you hired an m a bank. I would be curious to know what you found the most surprising thing they did in order to prepare you to go to market. I know they did Q of equality of earnings and some of the basic stuff that but I'd be curious, Like, was there something that they did and, and that made you think, huh, I wonder why they are doing that, want that piece of information, positioning us that way?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what, what I found the most effective purpose of an investment bank was in our transaction was the ability to legitimize the deal-making process in the sense that you have a person that's going and opening up the doors for you and engaging with the people for you, ultimately, you're still going to have to do a lot of the work. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people would argue, you know, you know, hey, well, is it really, was it really worth it? Was it worth spending that kind of capital? Could you have done it on your own? The answer is we probably could have done it on our own. I think the difference is that if a deal falls through, or if you have you know, multiple offers at the same time, having that buffer of the banker to manage those types of dynamics, I find to be um, rather helpful, you know, in that sense. I think personally, a lot of the Excel wizardry and financial, you know, stuff like that of just, you know, dialing up the Excels and all that work, that kind of that workmanship, I, I find that to be more on the speculative side. You know, I don't look at it as objectively as a lot of different finance people do. Like, and I'm sure it'd be like, oh, you know, go figure, Lorenzo, you know, bashing the Excel wizards. But that that's just my opinion, right? Yeah. I find that the businesses historicals are always the most reliable way to value the business.
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I would agree that, that M&A firms uh, can play an integral role, you know, especially when uh, you know, there are multiple bidders in the t- table and you've got to really have somebody run a structured process. And it sounds like that's what they did. But back to my question, was there anything that they did that, um, that was surprising in terms of, I'm particularly interested in the way they positioned you, because what I find with, with a lot of entrepreneurs and I put myself on that campus that we become fairly, uh, uh, set in our ways as it relates to how we position our company, how we talk about our company in the media and, and to customers and prospects. And we sort of have this sort of narrative that we are really good at, at sort of using. And then sometimes an MA firm will come in and, and slightly, you know, make a tweak or an adjustment to the way we talk about our business because they've got so much experience talking to acquirers and say, like, I get your narrative, but we need to tweak it you know 10% in this direction or did they do any of that sort of tweaking to your narrative your sort of positioning you know funnily
0: enough they they really didn't and i think it's because at the time we had so many companies reaching out to us that were interested in buying us and a lot of those companies were interested in buying us because of our narrative you know and and i think that that for that reason they saw all this demand so there wasn't this you know, appetite to change the narrative because in many ways they were saying, well, whatever they're doing to generate that inbound it's appetite, working, so company is working. So <laughs> yeah. this is easier for us, right? Double down. <laughs> so yeah. how
2: many, how many sort of interested parties came to the table? Like did, how many sort of potential acquirers did you sort of get engaged in the process? So we All
0: engaged parties. with four acquire four potential acquirers. And I would say Two were we got we went into full due diligence phase with, yeah. One of the two being the actual ultimate acquire, yeah, yeah.
2: And at, at at this stage of the game, prior to receiving any offers, were you still in the camp of you know four or five times cash flow feels about right given the market turbulence and so forth? Like, was that sort of your headspace? More yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, more? I
0: mean, our headspace, our goal was, I you know, I think seven times cash flow. Right. You always want to go higher. And that was pretty much the industry standard. And then, you know, admittedly, you know, we sold the company at a very, very uh, cheap evaluation. Um, but part of that and part of that decision was really driven by obviously the regulatory event, but also the acquirer. In our case, you know, we really liked the 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 management team of the acquiring company. Um, We also liked the boutique nature of the acquiring company, and we also liked the assets of the acquiring company that we would get to develop. And as a group of young entrepreneurs looking at the potential acquiring party and evaluating, hey, are we going to get lost in the sauce of a massive organism, you know, and are we going to be metabolized and kind of just spit out the rear end? Or is this an organism that we can actually effectuate change in? Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of the companies we were talking to of of the four companies, four or five companies, I should say, we were talking to, two of them were companies that had tens of thousands of
2: employees. Like Procter & Gamble size business, right? Where they've got 15 product lines and 50, 500
0: product lines. Yeah, exactly. Tens of thousands of employees exactly and and you know the difference between the company that acquired us is it was 450 people you know it was felt like a much more boutique operation and for us to go from an operation that had some 30 employees to an operation that had tens of thousands there was just there would be too much of a cognitive dissonance between mm-hmm. who we were and what our corporate identity was and what their identity would be at a large, large corporation that size. And so we really saw that. And we said, okay, well, that's going to play a really big factor into who we choose to go with. And if the decision, you know, was between, hey, do we take a 5X offer from a large company or a 6X offer from a large company or a 4X offer from a much smaller boutique company where we're happy with the management team? And when we know that our brands and the brands we built as well as the company we built would be Taken more seriously because it was a larger investment, then we're going to go with the with the more boutique operation, and that was something we did have a conversation about. Is look, is our goal just to make cash here, or is there an element of posterity in this in this deal? Do we really want to have some posterity, and also do we want to have a create a healthier working environment for the people at this company? Because obviously, if you sell to one of those large companies, you can get, you know. Pretty decimated, as you know. I'm sure in many of your conversations you've seen from the different dynamics post transaction. So
2: yeah, it's horrible, horrible. So the the um, at the time the acquirer um, and I had never heard of this company, but I've now since done a bit of research and and find them interesting. It's called Turning Point Brands, publicly traded, and you said they were around 450 employees at the time ish. (laughs) You guys were 30. It's really interesting. We talk a lot about something called the five to 20 rule, which says that the natural acquirer for your business is somewhere between five and 20 times this size of your business. And so you guys being roughly 10% of, uh, of TBG, uh, is exactly in that five to 20 range. So again, it, it feels really natural and good that a company like that would, would, would be a nice home. So that, that seems to make a ton of sense. Um, on the surface, you mentioned there was a couple of offers. And again, if you can't share, totally get it. But are you able to share who the other companies were that were in the running?
0: I wish I could. Unfortunately, it's under
2: confidentiality. Yeah, no, no Um, problem. No problem at all. So I figured as much. So, So you get, did you, I know you got down to like fairly serious diligence with two. Did you actually get letters of intent from two, like actual, did they firm up? what they were willing to offer?
0: Yeah. So we got, we got, I think it was three letters of intent in total. Okay. And then two of which one coming from turning point brands, um, were more formal and we wanted to do diligence with one yeah. of the other companies we wanted to do diligence with, which I actually think is a, is a very relevant story, um, had an incredibly cumbersome due diligence process. Some would argue excessive and overly costly. And that a lot has to do with the size of the company. Right. Um, And so it was really an interesting process for us when we went through this due diligence phase because, you know, we were dealing with consulting firms in the big five. Here we were, frankly, a tiny company um, going through this type of level of due diligence and scrutiny. Um, and, And that was crazy because I remember, you know, there was a situation where here I am, I think I must have been like 24 years old. And I'm sitting across from like big five accounting firm, you know, you know, nine or 10 different executives, you know, two or three times my age. And I'm trying to explain the dynamics of our very tiny operation. And the whole time, obviously, I'm like figuring it out as we're we're figuring it out as we go. But during that whole entire process, I'm sitting here saying, seems really expensive for such a small company. And lo and behold, it, it, it was right for 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 the for the acquiring party. And that also was very revealing because it showed that, okay, well, how nimble can a company be, you know, if this is their acquiring process, their due diligence process, you know, uh, vis-a-vis turning point brands, you know, they had a much more streamlined and efficient process for doing their due diligence and their quality of earnings, which showed, you know, a very flexible and nimble business that was dynamic.
2: Um, This other, this other sort of not mystery company, but company, let's call them Company B because we, we don't we don't want to share their name. But they were much larger than Turning Point Brands. I'm assuming. What? How did the offers compare? Like uh, top line valuation versus uh, you know percentage of cash up front versus sort of uh, earn out or or hold back or whatever. Like how how did you what was your like how did you compare the two two offers and what were the Good parts of one versus the other. Yeah, absolutely. So Company B had a
0: far better financial offer.
2: And, you know... First of all, Turning turning Point Brands made it public. So I think the ultimate acquiring price was 15.25 million, 8.25 cash, 7 million in restricted stock units, right? So that's how they broke it out. Yeah, right?
0: yeah. And the acquiring party... Um, the other acquiring party or potential acquiring party, I should call them, had a much more upfront cash offer. Okay, so
2: bigger on the upfront. Was the overall valuation similar in the fifteen?
0: It was. It was. It was a higher valuation. So the way the other offer worked was, it came in higher initially in the LOI, and then they do, you know, obviously they go through the due diligence process and they do the standard, you know, cut, you know, which, you know. We were warned about in advance as we went into the due diligence processes. Look, you know, they're going to come in with an initial offer, the standard procedures, then they go through QA and they try to come in with a, with a smaller offer. So we were very aware of that. But even after that, the, the company had a higher uh, offer on the cash what, side.
2: What was the, we refer to it on this show as retrading. Uh, I don't know if that, 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 uh, that term is what you use. What was the percentage discount? I've heard everything from 10 to 30% off after the diligence like what what was the drop from original down to what they were proposing to close at after you, the retraining you know, honestly it's it's
0: been about close to 4 years now so i don't remember exactly but if i had to ballpark and guess it i think it was around 40% it was wow. something pretty dramatic right
2: okay that's and that was rough. also
0: something where we said hmm, that's pretty dramatic you know, uh, it felt excessive, It felt a little opportunistic, but we understood it. You know, we said, look, they're, they're business people. Like we,
2: you know, how did they
0: justify that, that drop? Like
2: what was their case? This is why we need to drop it by 40%.
0: You know, there wasn't, I, I, you know, the discussions around why and how I think a lot of it connected, it was the nature of the industry. And, and frankly, with, with that certain company we were dealing with, you know, you had a span of around six to seven months that had lapsed um, between when we started due diligence and when we completed it. And so you did have like, you know, I don't want to say a softening. Well, no, you could say a softening of sales on our side. So they, they articulated, well, you know, sales, you know, your growth is slowing, you know, last few months haven't been good, as good as the first few months. But either way, we said, well, look, from a cash flow perspective, just look at the cash flow, like the cash flow is great. So, you know, and, and it's it's holding and over the period of years, you know, look, it's natural for a company that does, a, you know, goes parabolic to have like a little bit of a, you know, little spin curve. The benefit of of Turning Point Brands is, you know, we had conversations with company B right as we were kind of flexing into this area and Turning Point Brands kind of came right in at that area as well. So, you know, it was a little bit different for their due diligence team, I think.
2: What was the reaction among the partnership group, so Eric, Tomi, and, and Brendan, when company B dropped their offer price? And I ask this because a lot of entrepreneurs, when they hear the drop, now you guys had the benefit of kind of anticipating it. But when some entrepreneurs aren't anticipating it, they get really pissed. I mean, they're slamming their fist on the table and said, we had a deal this is underhanded. This is nefarious dealing in, in, in poor faith, etc. cetera. And so I'd be curious to know, like, take me inside the dialogue among the four of you. Were you slamming your fists on the table or what were you doing?
0: Yeah. So I remember, so we, we had the revised, I believe it was the term sheet at the time. And I kind of called a meeting. Everybody came in both, you know, the, the, the minor minority partners and the larger partners and bring them all in. And we're like, I'm like, you know, guys, you know, hate to be the one bringing the bad news, but this is the situation, you know, I'm not happy about it. That being said, like we have a decision to make. And at that point, you know, that was subsequently followed by a lot of explicit language for five (laughs) minutes. And then everybody calmed down. And I said, look, you know, at the end of the day, we have a great business. So who cares? Right. You know, and we just said, we kind of came together. We said, look, let's just, let's kind of see what else is out there. And around that time, I got in my car, I think it was, it was a Friday, I got in my car, and I drove to the desert of Joshua Tree. And I kind of just hung out there for the weekend and camped out by myself, just to kind of think and 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 decide, you know, what what would be best um, for our operation. And then, you know, after the weekend, I came back, you know, and we came back, and it was business as usual, you know, and, and we really just kind of said, look, let's just keep going, you know.
2: What sorts of questions did you ask yourself uh, at the Joshua tree uh, retreat? Let's call it.
0: Yeah. So during the, during the, the, my, uh, I guess you could call my uh, easy rider moment, right. Um, (laughs) You know, during that moment, you know, a lot of the questions that ran through my head was, you know, for me personally, there was, you know, it was, it was quite a battle uphill battle. Right. Um, And, you know, in 2011, 2012, I moved out to California with, uh, you know, a suitcase and a one-way ticket, you know, classic trope, you know, right, of everybody that moves to California, you know, and just fell into a swimming pool and here I was, right? Um, So I'm out here in California and, you know, from 2012 to 2016, 17, you know, it was really rough kind of trying to figure out, okay, how am I going to cover my expenses? Every single rent check was like, an ordeal, right? It was like, you know, okay, how am I going to pay this bill? And then all of a sudden life just started getting easier. And all of a sudden I stopped thinking about every restaurant purchase. I stopped having to think about, you know, bills and things like that. And then things got dramatically easier. And though my lifestyle hadn't changed, you know, nothing got nicer. My cars weren't getting nicer. Nothing, I wasn't making any big purchases. You know, there was a lot of relief in that. And, you know, for me, when I was in Joshua Tree, the big question was, Where do I want to, you know, do I want to, you know, at at my point in time in life, do I want to keep pushing the boundaries and keep risking it? Because obviously when you run the business, you're still dealing with a lot of working capital that's in the business. Do I want to keep rolling the dice with that capital or do I want to try to take some chips off the table so that way I can think clearly on how to position myself to have another dramatic event or moment or enterprise or venture or whatever in the future. And I think that's really kind of what it came down to for me, um, was, was that kind of thought process. And I think the conclusion was, is that, you know, to take bigger risks, I needed to get something off the table to drive more change and create something
2: new as well. Yeah. And, and so you, you come back from the weekend, um, is is Turning Point Brands at this stage? Uh, so, so on Monday morning after the Joshua Tree weekend, are ha, have they got a letter of intent in front of you, or are they a little bit further behind in the process?
0: So they were further behind in the process, and it was funny because when I came back on Monday, I walked in, I grabbed all my partners, I brought them in the room, I said, "Guys, I'm not interested in selling anymore. So you know, I'm not going to actively pursue transactions." let's just build this business into a Goliath and let's go after everyone, right? Let's let's take kind of, we'll be the underdogs and and we'll keep growing and, and we'll keep fighting.
2: Um, and that was- That's my exactly mentality. the opposite of what you had told yourself on the weekend. So was that just a- uh, it, it was just, it was just a play.
0: complete 180, right? <laughs> and so, you know, um, and, and that was the funny thing is so I kind of went through this logic on the weekend and then I said, you know, almost- paradoxically, I said, well, the only way to get to that is to keep focusing on the business. Right. And so I came in and kind of explained this to my partners. I said, look, guys, this is what we're going to do. And then through doing that, we're going to get other people that are going to be interested. And then we'll be have more leverage at the negotiating table. And so the idea was is rather than try to, you know, I think the learning lesson for me there was when you chase after selling a company and when you chase after the the, the process of, hey, we need to sell the business you lose sight of what makes the business desirable to be purchased for, right? Mm-hmm. Like people want to buy something that they can't have. And if you truly believe that you don't want to sell the thing, it somehow, some way, and, and I'll leave this up to voodoo magic, gets other people to say, hey, we want to buy it, right? It's kind of an ironic thing. And and when you're least expecting to sell the business is somehow when all the events for us happened, right? So, Turning Point Brands, for example, that case, I wasn't really super engaged in the idea of selling the business. I was entertaining conversations, but I kind of was already past that point. I was like, "No, we're gonna." I was already planning to, you know, raise capital. We already had a few million in the bank that we were preparing to use to file for an FDA application. So for me, I was like, "Look, I'm good to go. I've got my backup plan ready." And then obviously, you know, we met with the management team of Turning Point Brands, and they were fantastic. And, um, you know, after a lot of different conversations, you know, we were just culturally, we were a lot more aligned and, you know, it it just made sense then.
2: I love it. I love it. So what a great lesson uh, for for folks listening. Hey, I know your time is short, so let's jump into a a quick lightning round. I've got a couple questions for you. I just need a quick answer. Are you up for that? Yeah, let's try it. (laughs) Slimiest trick. I think I know the answer to this one, but slimiest trick, a potential acquirer used on you. In the process of selling your company?
0: Slimiest trick? Obviously, you'd have to say retrading a deal, but I was aware of it. You know, um, I'd say that. I'd say the retrading yeah. of deals is probably the slimiest trick in the acquiring handbook.
2: Yeah. Biggest mistake you made during the selling process?
0: Biggest mistake we made during the selling process was not to hire somebody to handle all of the day-to-day inbound and outbound requests that would come in from an acquirer.
2: Even though you had an M&A firm engaged? Or is this private? Exactly,
0: yeah. Just somebody in-house to just take things in and spit them back out in a very
2: fast pace. Lowest emotional point that you reached during the exit process? That's a good one.
0: I, I would have to say during the exit process, it was when we decided that we were thinking about no longer selling the business after that we uh before that weekend that i described earlier yeah
2: before the trip uh highest emotional point you reached during the exit process
0: i think highest emotional point was um when i finally signed the contract i went to the bank to wire everybody out their funds and I was done with the whole process. I think it was, I wasn't, there wasn't even a like happiness about like the money or anything like that. It was more so just, thank God I'm done with this like process. You know, the, the as you said, the entrepreneur's colonoscopy, I think is a very yeah. you know accurate assessment.
2: As you uh, prepared yourself to go through this process, it sounds like you got really well educated, talked to people and you learned about retrading and many other things. What resources did you find super helpful? Was there a book, an online course, a a webinar, a conference that you went to that really helped educate you about the selling process?
0: I think the best thing for me was I started talking to different people who had gone through the process and that was the most helpful thing. You know, I think talking and listening to people's stories who had gone through the process was by far the most accurate portrait of it. You know, I'd done a lot of reading and read a lot of books on it. Um, none of them were as probably enlightening as Built to Sell, right? Um, <laughs> That's but, but yeah, so it was, I think the best thing was just listening to other people's stories.
2: Awesome. And would you buy yourself as a trophy to commemorate this achievement?
0: <laughs> it's a great. Great question. So I actually tried to buy myself a car and I walked into a car dealership and I walked in and I said, Hey, you know, I'd like to buy this car. And it was, I think a 2014 Porsche and the guy at the car dealership, uh, then proceeded to tell me that I could not afford the car and that I should take out a high interest rate loan to buy the car from his car dealership. And despite me saying, Hey, I would just like to pay for it in cash right now he wouldn't let me buy the car. And so I didn't end up buying the car and I still drive my, you know, 2010 Prius. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So I've been scared away from buying nice
2: items after that. You, yeah, know, so. yeah. you know what? You're probably better off. That's, uh, that's, that's fantastic. Wow. Yeah. Well, he, missed a, he missed out on a pretty good sale. Yeah. Um, I am so grateful for you spending the time. I know your time is tight. If people want to reach out with you to you, Lorenzo, is there a best place? Is there a social account that you might point people to?
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, people can always reach out to me on my LinkedIn, which is my name, Lorenzo Deplano, or just send me an email through my website, com. Lorenzo, thanks for doing this. Thanks a lot, John. I appreciate it.
1: Hey, Colin Morgan here. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. As you just heard, Lorenzo referenced an impending ruling by the FDA that could potentially put them and others out of business. And that threat truly is what drove down the value of that business. And between when we recorded the episode to when we released it today, the Wall Street Journal just announced that Jewel, one of their main and probably the leading competitor in the industry, just lost that FDA case and is now facing bankruptcy. So it's kind of a little wrinkle in the story I wanted to share with you. And I will actually link that article in the show notes section of this podcast, which can be found over at built to I truly hope you enjoyed John Warlow's conversation today with Lorenzo Deplano. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, along with definitions for some of the more technical terms that John and Lorenzo talked about, you can go ahead and visit the episode page again, which can be found over at sell.com. If you know someone who would be a perfect fit to be a guest right here on Built to Sell Radio, then you can actually nominate them over at BuiltToSell.com dot com slash nominate where there you can nominate someone else or yourself to be a guest right here on the show special thanks to dennis Labitaglia for handling the audio engineering and thank you to the entire community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you our advisor community are experts in helping you build the value of your company to find an advisor or learn how to become one yourself visit valuebuilder.com I'm Colin Morgan. Talk to you again next week.